this is the shortest book of the Old Testament, Obadiah. If you're a visitor here, what we're doing is we're preaching through all of the Old Testament. Those of you that are wondering what's coming next, we're going to take a look at the names of God, the names of Jesus, and the names of the Holy Spirit, and that will actually take a year as well. Uh, so it's, we're, going to, we're all basic here about the Bible and about the God we serve. We want to know all of that and know it very, very well. But this little book, the book of Obadiah, while it is short, it is full. It is one of the richest books when it comes to metaphors, poetry, and the way he uses language. This was uh, a master at language. Even though it doesn't really come through in English, it really comes through if you know ancient literature. He moves, there's a movement in the book, uh, one chapter, uh, from the, the general to the specific and the specific to the general. For example, the judgment of Edom to the judgment of all mankind, from the restoration of Israel to the coming of the kingdom of God that restores all to God. And his message, while beautiful, can get lost in our ears, to, along with all of his metaphoric, apocalyptic language, simply distilled. The book says this, move beyond world conflicts, revolutions, and wars to the kingdom of God. Leave that, go to his kingdom now, because right now God rules in grace in that kingdom. We do not pray at this church that the Lord will unite us. We pray, Lord, help us remember we are already united in Christ. We do not pray, Lord, one day we pray we will see your kingdom. No, we pray, Lord, let us be the kingdom that you've already established. We're aware that God is now and that the kingdom is a coming and a present fact. To illustrate what Obadiah is trying to tell you, I'm going to go a very strange place for a lot of you. You might be wondering why, but hang with the story. It's not a very long story and it, it'll make sense in a bit. To get to Obadiah's message, I want to tell you about a Scottish girl named Mary. I had a lot of time with my grandsons this week, and my three-year-old grandson has a Middle Tennessee accent, and yes, you do have one, quetzy, and you don't. And uh, it's not a chair, it's a chair, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> and every night, however, at our house, he would say, Granda, tell us a Scottish, and his mouth would all twist, Scottish story, you know, and then I say, oh, there you are, son, you know, have a seat, and, and we had a great time. Well, this is a Scottish girl named Mary. Mary was born in Scotland during the 1840s. If you're a historian, you know about the 1840s in Europe. They were known as the hungry times. It was an awful time. Unemployment was killing the cities, and it was killing the culture. Because when you're hungry and you're starving and your children are dying and you can't find food and you're living among filth, there were no sewers, filth was thrown into the streets. And if you're thinking, ooh, how horrible, it was being done here as well. But there, there were a lot more people and a lot more concentrated area. It was a horrible time. You, you really, if you're living in that, you can't make art and you can't write music and you can't do plays and culture dies too. Great swaths of land are being forcibly cleared for sheep. You may not know this, sheep are not native to Scotland, and we have a lot more sheep than we do people now. Uh, but they didn't used to be there very much. They were, the people were cleared off, 
forcibly. Their homes are burned and they were put on ships and told, leave. The laird or the lord or the duke or the earl or whoever's in charge of your land has decided he can make more money off sheep than whatever you're doing. And so that's the great diaspora of the Scots where they went to Canada, to the Americas, to um, uh, Australia, New Zealand, all over the world because they had no other place to go. It's known as the Highland Clearances. Disease, crime was everywhere. Beggars were everywhere. Sewage, disease, crime was everywhere. Mary's mother was a weaver. In those days, you worked 14 hours a day, six days a week. You had a 15-minute break during the middle of the day for your necessities, which that's your time that you could go to the bathroom. But 14 hours in horrible conditions. Her father was an abusive drunk who spent all the money that was earned at the weaving on drink. So Mary, at the age of 11, had to quit school and go to work at the Weavers. 14 hours a day at the age of 11, a 15-minute break, six days a week, all weeks of the year. That's the, the life that she lived. And they loved working with little kids. They loved them because their little fingers could get into the machinery and do things, even though it mangled a lot of children. Mary's mother pawned almost everything they owned, but Mary's mother kept telling her, her daughter, this is important, about the love of Jesus. Even though there didn't seem to be a lot of evidence, she kept passing on her faith to her daughter. One night at a church meeting, young Mary was fascinated by the reports she heard from a missionary, missionary who was serving in Africa, which... It's so hard for us to grasp this. To hear a story from Africa in the 1840s would be rather like somebody today saying, we're doing a mission trip to Pluto. It was unknown, unmapped. It was a big blank spot on the maps. No names were there. If you find old maps that have names and such written in, that was all made up. No, nobody had been there. Not, none, none of us had been there. I love it when... Columbus comes over and runs into a place that he didn't know where he was and didn't know where he was going. When he got back, he didn't know where he'd been. But uh, when he landed and it was already full of people, he discovered it. They, they were already there. Anyway, um, Africa was full of people, but we didn't know about it. How's that? Fair enough? Mary began to read her New Testament because she wanted to know what would motivate anybody to go to such a horrible place. Think of what her life was like. To go to such a horrible place and full of dangers, unmapped, mysteries. But through reading her New Testament and stories about David Livingston, another Scot who had gone one of the first to go in, she decided she wanted to go to a place she'd heard of. Didn't know anything about it. Nigeria. And against all odds, it's a long story, I'll save you all of that, she went. And it's really a miracle when you look at all the things that had to happen to get this little Scottish lady all the way from the industrial belt of the Midlands of Scotland into Nigeria in a time where women didn't do things like that. She made it there. And there to greet her were swamps, insects, malaria, witchcraft, ritual murder, and tribal wars, and she didn't blink. 
She was undaunted. She founded on her own an orphanage and also a school. And she ran both while settling tribal feuds and treating the sick. And all the while, she had one story. She told them about the love of Jesus. How many times have we said here at Fourth Avenue, our evangelism is to love people until they ask us why? Love. I want this church to be forever known as a place you go and you can feel love from the parking lot to the pew and back again. Every person you meet, love. Every lesson, love. Every worship, love. The love of Jesus. What motivated this little girl, now a woman, to do all this demanding work in terrible conditions? Mary Slessor, that's S-L-E-S-S-O-R, if you want to look her up later. By the way, in history, she's known as Mary Slessor of Calabar. Mary Slessor said it was because she agreed with Obadiah. See, we came back. That God is a God of great grace, and his kingdom would one day be universally acknowledged, that one day every knee will bow, and Mary wanted to get people ready and start bowing now. Avoid the rush, we might say. She believed everything on earth was temporary, and it shouldn't be the focus of our lives. Oh, my job's tough, tough and terrible. That's temporary. Oh, I've got this going on in my family. That's all temporary. Oh, look at the state of politics. It's all temporary. Don't focus on the temporary. And so Mary told people to focus on what would last forever. She told them money, health, comfort. Quote from her, anything which might breed fear in your lives is temporary and should be treated as such. What a profound message from a woman which many of you had never heard of before. I, I rarely repeat what I put in an e-blast, but I'm aware that it's only read by a certain percentage of you here. So I'll do this very briefly. I put it in e-blast last time. Most of you have not been to France, but you believe there is a France because you've seen movies and you've seen the Eiffel Tower and you've seen, you've, you've had people that say, well, I've been, and you believe them. So you believe that there's a France. The sad thing is most Christians believe in God like they believe in France. And I'll explain. How many of you this week sometime were about to say something? And before it got to your lips, you stopped and went, wait a minute, I better not. There's a France. <laughs> or you're about to buy something, or you're about to go somewhere, you're about to make this big decision, or you were about to wear something, and you stopped and went, no, you know something, there's a France, and I need to modify my behavior. I don't think any of you. I certainly didn't, and I've been there. Too many people believe in God like they believe in France. They believe he's there, but he doesn't affect their daily behavior. And you might say, well, he, no, he affects mine. All right, let me back it up. They don't let him be Lord of every moment. And they allow the temporary to crowd out the eternal. One of the great expressions in Scripture is that phrase, and it came to pass, because everything will but him. Therefore, Mary said, 
live for him. Back to Obadiah. Here is the main problem going on when Obadiah wrote his short book. Edom was a people group, the Edomites, that lived along the edge of the Dead Sea, all the way down to the shores of the Red Sea. And they lived in fortified cities, rock cities. That was very uncommon at that time. All the armies that kept coming through. Remember we told you last week, little Israel sitting right there, Israel and Judah. Over here is Egypt. Over here is Syria and Assyria. And it's just, they're, they're always fighting each other right in the middle is, is, are the Jews. And all those armies coming through, beating up on the Jews on their way back and forth, didn't mess with Edom because Edom was not an easy target. Edom was up higher and in rock cities. And Edom didn't come down to help the Jews. In fact, they would come down after the armies had gone through and beaten up the Jews or the Israelites, they'd come through and beat them up again to get their stuff because they'd been weakened. And here's the really awful part about this. The Edomites were part of the Jewish family. They're related. Smug and secure, they didn't care. They didn't care. They lived for the day. You know, there is nothing worse than a family fight. And this is a family fight. We have a few policemen in the audience, and you know what it's like when the message comes through that it's a domestic disturbance. Nobody goes alone to a domestic disturbance. You take a group, that's going to be bad. You know, wild man with a machete in them all, got this. <laughs> domestic disturbance, everybody, let's go. Because they're fighting with motivation. And Edom and Israel was a family fight, and Israel couldn't win. The Edomites had been, by the way, they've been doing this a long time. When the Jews came out of bondage and that 48 years in the wilderness type stuff, they wanted to enter the promised land through the land of Edom, and the Edomites wouldn't let them, so they had to do the long way around. This family had been dysfunctional a long time. The Edomites, here's the kicker, here's the phrase to remember, were acting as if there were no God. doesn't matter if you believe in him. Are you acting? as if there is not a God. Martin Luther suffered with grave depression. So did many of God's people, from Job and Jeremiah, all the way through Charles Spurgeon and Luther and many others. One time when he was in his darkest period, his wife came down all dressed in black with a black veil. And he asked her what she was doing, and she said, I am mourning the death of God. And he said, God is not dead. And she said, husband, you act as if he is. And from then on, he had a phrase that he would remind himself of several times a day. He would stop and say, but I am a Christian. I have been baptized. And that would change whatever he was about to do. I'm a Christian now. I've been baptized. We have seen some horrible things recently, if you paid attention to the news. Not just babies slaughtered in the womb and their parts sold. This third video that came out showed that some babies were born live and intact and then killed for their parts. And yet our own administration said, oh, those are fraudulent videos. Fra Define fraudulent video when you can see it and people say, oh, they've been edited. Go watch the whole thing, I dare you. It's sickening. 
I, it's not for, any, not for most people, I'll put it that way, to see. We live in a time of Molech, where people are sacrificing babies to gods again, where they will lie to um, advance their politics. Whatever side, by the way, it's not just one side. We have to back off and say, I'm not an Edomite, I'm not a Jewish, uh, I'm not an Israelite, I'm not, not from Judah, I am a child of God. And by the way, people in Edom and alike, they can be children of God too. But you have to make that decision that we are now citizens of a different kingdom, as Paul would put it in Philippians. Obadiah, if you're wondering, it's not a really obvious time. We're going to come to that first verse now. Uh, chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. For the day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they'd never been. Why is it I had to tell you who the Edomites were? They were rulers of the roost. And you don't even know who they Well, most of you don't even know who they were. Why? Because God took them. What about these others? What about the Jebusites? You know much about them? I don't. There's not much to know. Whatever happened to the Philistines? Do you know that's a big mystery in, the his, in history? They were everywhere. The historians normally call them part of the, seas, the sea people. S-E-A. The sea people. They disappeared. What happened? God says, I've had enough. We have to wonder how much God will take from us if we do not live as if we belong to him not to the world. This is a family fight, like I said. And Obadiah wants to give us a reminder. It's in chapter, um, chapter one. It, there's only one chapter. Anybody read chapter two? Anybody read chapter two? It's, yeah, it's a way to check who's lying. You know, that's the way to do it. In, uh, in Obadiah verse 21, if we'd put that up, please. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of es Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Now, you may wonder what's the... Here's the thing. God will wreak vengeance on those who do wrong, not us. That's not our job. Because when we do vengeance, we do it wrong. When we avenge ourselves, we break community. When God avenges, he does it in a way which heals communities. Now, that's a very deep thing, and you're going to have to read all through the Scripture to see it. But when God wreaks vengeance, he does it in a way to save a community. When we wreak vengeance, we split communities. That's why he says, you let me do this. The deliverers from God will go up to Esau. He never says, Israelites, go get them. He says, no, I'll take care of this. I'll deal with it. He takes what looks like failure and turns it into glory. And the greatest example of this is, of course, the cross. Crucified Christ is revealed, crowned with glory and honor. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. I love Hebrews. I'm so glad you guys chose Hebrews. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Look at that. Look like he lost, but he won. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. 
in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, that's what Mary Slesser understood, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Through his suffering, his vengeance brought us together. He's different than us. That's why he's God. That's why he's king. So he even reaches out to Edom. Now here's a a part. As I was reading through scripture uh, years ago, wrestling with God, I, I noticed this. Obadiah says there will be no survivors of the kingdom of Edom. But Amos says that a remnant in Edom will survive. Is there a contradiction here? No, I don't think so. And I, I hope I'm not trying to be too defensive. But I don't think so. If you'd look in Acts chapter, well, Acts chapter 15, Paul says that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things. Now look at the phrase, who bear my name. I think that's the the key. Did Edomites, some Edomites, eventually belong to God? No, because when they belong to God, they're no longer Edomites. They're children of God. They're no longer British. They're no longer American. They're no longer Nigerian. They, They belong to God now. We're a different kingdom. We behave in a different way. And the world looks at that and goes, but, 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 but how, how can that work? Because we want an earthly king. We want our rulers to rule in a certain way. And, and watch the political process. It's not like you have much of a choice. Watch it. And everybody wants their champion. That'll fix it. No, only God can fix this. And we're going to have to start by behaving like it. Those who bear his name. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 5. So from now on, look at this. I dare you. Look at this. This is amazing. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Can we stop right there and everybody let the buzzer go off in your head? Because I I have this week. Have you? Seen somebody, and you look at them in a certain way. We don't look that way anymore. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we... We do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The future has become the present. The old is gone. The past is away. The new is here. Mary Slesser and those like her had an answer to an old question posed by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See that community again. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, here's the question. What kind of people ought you to be? That's what Mary kept teaching. It's all temporary. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in heat. But in keeping with his promise, 
We're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Several of you here were actually members of my church up in Michigan. I'll never forget the day I walked into my office and I thought, something's different. I looked about and noticed the guitars were gone. And I thought, oh, they've been borrowed by the children's ministry or borrowed by... After a while, no. Long story short, they'd been stolen. And I was a little hurt. They left a ukulele. Um, I thought, well, that's just insulting. You know, um, we, I, I went to the people that were in the building and I asked them, do you know who might have done this? And they assumed a music critic um, <laughs> wanting to silence the tragedy of my playing. Uh, but we, we moved on from there. And I, it, it's a Detroit area, so we had some rough folk here. And uh, he wouldn't mind me even saying that one of the guys was Josh Turner. Some of you guys remember Josh. And he, he got his gang together. And they said, we're going to hit the pawn shops. We're going to find out. And I said, you know, let him go. They were all kenneling for the end of the world barbecue. Let him go. We need to understand it comes to pass. This was brought home to me this week. Whenever there, there's a concert coming up in a couple of weeks, and there's a poster in the back here uh, where Michael Card and a couple others are going to play for free, and the idea is to raise enough money to help the Franklin Community Center build a shelter house here in Franklin, which we don't have for men, but they're trying to get one done, and that's, it's a great thing. So Lauren's back from Nicaragua. I've got to tell on you here. I'm telling on me, really. And I said to her, would you like one of these posters? to advertise to the teens because Michael Card's going to be there. And she looked at me and she goes, I don't know who that is. So I said, well, he's kind of the father of Christian contemporary music. And, um, you know, he, he wrote some songs for Amy Grant and she's just looking at me. I'm going, this isn't getting any better. This is not becoming more convincing at all. So I just, uh, I slipped it under a door and ran. Um, point is my music's not her music her music's not the next music but you know what I love is in this place today some of our youngest people sang with gusto power in the blood and rock of ages and our old people sang Matt Redman and Chris Tomlin songs why because we're aware we are temporary this is all temporary this is all passing it, we even sang a song about generations yet to come. Mark does an, such an incredible job of matching the songs and the flow and making the old songs new and the, and the new songs uh, palatable to the old. He works uh, magic on that as far as I'm concerned. And as we're singing all of these things, it dawns on me, you know, and you knew I had to mention it, I have a new grandson born this week. And as I held him, I thought, this is a whisper of God to us that he's not finished with us yet. And our raising him will tell us whether we're not finished with him. This is a communication. How will we trust that one day, and it won't be that far away, it'll be my turn to step back and let the others step up trusting that they will be led by God to do what is right in the right ways, knowing that this world will pass. Are we preparing the continuity of the faith? 
Don't assume that they know the stories. Tell them the stories. And show them by your life that you're not going to be trapped by this world. Do you know the monkey trap? It's an old story, but it's true. In some islands, they would trap monkeys, and they would do it for food. Uh, but you would, some people would also do it for the sales to zoos or to, um, to train them. But most of all, it was for food. And the way to trap because monkeys are a little hard to trap. Monkeys are unpredictable. When my son was nine years old, he went to Guyana and on a medical mission. Yes, nine years old. Our family's a bit different. And uh, on the way, when he came back, I asked him, what was the biggest thing you learned? Wasn't, he'd delivered babies. He'd help stitch people up and, and pull teeth and all the other. That wasn't it. He, one day he'd picked up a monkey. He said, I learned something. It's easier to pick up a monkey than it is to put him down. <laughs> I thought, that's brilliant. I'm using that. <laughs> to capture them, they would tie coconuts to vines and then put a hole in the coconut and put food in the coconut. The monkey would reach in and grab the food, but his fist is too big to come out of the coconut. He can get away if he'll just release the food, but he won't. Friends, the world has us in a monkey trap. If we don't let loose of it, we're trapped. We have got to learn to let loose of this stuff so that we're not trapped by our stuff. Mark, want to bring your, or is it just you or the team? Or the whole team, bring them on up here. We've I'll, got a, about two minutes, and I'll step down and give you some room. Wow, I went longer than I said I would. Sorry, Laurie. I told her 25 minutes. You know, I lie, but I'm already up here to repent. So... I'd come forward every Sunday. So, um, <laughs> would you stand with me, please? When you turn loose and look to God and believe in Him, not like you believe in France, but believe in Him because He is God, you are free, free to be holy, free to wear His name, free to live knowing that God matters. For friends, if there is no God, nothing matters. But if there is a God, nothing else matters.